You are a great and an awesome God. And we are truly privileged, Lord, to be your sons and daughters, adopted into your family, to be able to know you in a personal and intimate way. But also, Lord, that above that, that you would take us and choose to use us. Father, we are so unworthy. But Lord, we thank you that you take broken vessels, Lord, and you, you mend us up and you fill us up, Lord, that we might be broken and poured out yet again. And Lord, I just pray for each person who's here. You know what the future holds for each of them, Father. I pray that you would lead them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you give them a clear sense of your heart and your will. And I pray, Lord, that none of us would strive, but, Father, we would all rest in you. We'd be men and women who are disciplined and desperate, and, Father, seeking after you with our whole heart. And, Lord, we just can't wait. We want to use this life we have, this vapor of time, for your glory. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to have you guys here. It's always great. Usually I try to come out whenever I'm invited to uh, share at the School of Ministry. Um, recently I've gone back to work full-time. Uh, so I'm pastoring the church and working full-time, which is what a lot of you will end up doing. Or you'll be doing ministry and working full-time. But you know what? Paul made tents. And if that's what God has you do, that's great, because then you get to be out in the mission field all day long. Amen? So it's good stuff. Well, I'm going to share briefly, which for me, uh, if you go to our church, you know what that means, but you don't, so you have no idea, but uh, it's pastoral briefly, right? But uh, first of all, I just want to share with you how I ended up here, and kind of to give you an idea that, you know, our God does things so often contrary to what we think or we imagine. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. These are my parents, if you haven't met them. My dad is, was a, a Baptist pastor when I was a a kid growing up. I got saved when I was four and a half years old at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington when Mrs. Green in the four and five-year-old class uh, did the flannel board and talked about the cross. And for the first time, I truly understood what it meant to be a Christian. I gave my life to the Lord. And, and though I certainly have been far from uh, a perfect Christian, and there's no such thing, that's why we need Christ. Amen. Uh, you know, I've never really had a time from then until now where I was in rebellion against God or I walked away from God or I denied him in any way. I had some rough spots in my teenage years like we all maybe had. But you know what? My, my passion for the Lord, as I know, comes directly from him. But I'll say this. Growing up, people would always ask, if you're a pastor's kid, a PK, you get the question often, do you think you're going to be a pastor someday? And my answer, I didn't have to think about it. The answer was absolutely not. No way. Not going to happen. And so as I grew up, uh, when I played uh, football in college, they called me preacher boy. So I certainly had a faith in God. I had a love for the Lord. But I never, ever, ever, ever thought I'd be a pastor. I got married when I was 21, I've been, so I've been married 23 years now. I'm 44. I have a 19-year-old daughter who just got married to one of our youth pastors, which was an absolute blessing. I have a 16-year-old son, a 15-year-old son, and a 14-year-old son. And that's why I was a little late. I'm also the chaplain for the high school football team, the Christian high school football team down the street. And that was their banquet tonight. So we got married when I was in my early 20s, and uh, my dad had always told me, son, you should sell something because you're really good with people. And I went out and got a sales job. God blessed it. And we moved to Seattle and Denver and Kansas City. We ended up in Southern California. And I was working for a company, and God was blessing my job. I had a beautiful wife, a brand-new baby girl. Um, everything was great, prospering. I was part of the setup team at church and working in the children's ministry. Felt like I had a gift of giving, so I gave a great amount because I just felt like that's what God would have me do because God was blessing me at work. And I'll never forget thinking, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And truly, there is nothing wrong with that. Being someone who's on the servant, you know, 
servant team, setup crew, and being on the being in the children's ministry, and and all the baptisms were at our house because God had blessed us with a pretty good sized home with a big backyard, and we'd have hundreds of people over for baptisms. And I just thought that's what I was going to be, you know, a Christian businessman who loves God and serves in the local church in whatever way they ask me to. And I'll never forget uh, a radical turning point in my Christian walk. I had gone to a, a sales awards meeting in, at the Anaheim Convention Center, and for the third year in a row, they announced that I was the number one rep in the entire company. They brought me up there, and I was very driven, very much a goal-oriented guy. You know, I won this award again, and I'm driving home, my 72-mile commute home, and I pulled off on the side of the road, and I just started weeping. And I cried out to God and said, God, is this it? Is this all you have for me? You know, I mean, from the world's perspective, it seemed like I had everything great. I had, again... Beautiful wife, wonderful home, brand new baby girl, everything's great, serving at church, God's using me. Uh, you know, and I believe that was the time that I was, for the first time in my life, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, everything in my life changed. Not that I wasn't saved before, because I certainly was, but I'll tell you what, my passions, my priorities, and everything was different. I got home, and I walked in the door, and I told my wife, God wants to do more with us. And I remember my wife saying, what does that mean? And I said, I don't know. I just know God wants to do more with us. And so the, that was on a Friday. On the following Sunday, I went to church. Don, John Snoddley, who pastors the Calvary in Antioch, was pastoring the Calvary. I lived out in Lancaster, Palmdale, out in the desert. And I went to church that following Sunday, meeting in a gymnasium like we do now. And when I went in on Sunday, he said, oh, by the way, if anybody's here, do you feel like God wants to do more with your life? And I, and I literally, what? You know, and he said, we're starting a thing called cross-training this afternoon from 2 to 5, a discipleship training class for any guys who really feel like God wants to do more with their life. And I looked at my wife and I said, that's it, that's it. So God had prepared my heart for that moment. And I started going to this cross-training. The third week, he asked me if I'd pray about being a youth pastor. I was in my early 20s at the time. And I, and be honest, when, when I went to my, the church that my dad pastored here in Santa Cruz later when I grew up, there were no teenagers in the church. It was me and one other guy. So there was no youth group. So I'd actually never been to a youth group in my life, and now I'm asked to be a youth pastor. And I don't know what a youth pastor does. i got no idea. So I'm saying, well, I, you know, I prayed a prayer. I said, whatever you want, God. Now he's asked me to do something I don't know how to do. But, you know, and I went home and prayed about it, and I came back, and I said, well, I don't know what a youth pastor does, but um, if you want me to do it, I'll try. And it started out with six girls, four of which were sisters, sitting around a table, and I taught them through the Gospel of John the best that I could. And by God's grace, that youth group absolutely exploded. To know, you know, just, you know, just shows that God can use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And how it just grew to, to the point where at one point it was almost the size of the church. God really just opened it up. Kids were getting saved. Lives were being transformed. I've been doing the youth for about three months, so teaching six girls. And if the one family was out of town, it was really lonely. You know what I mean? Because four of them were sisters. I think I remember one boy started coming up to a while. Ooh, we're up to seven now. It was pretty exciting. But you know what? God put a real thing in my heart that, it, you know, we need to be as prepared to teach three as we would 3,000. When you stand before three five-year-olds, you should be as prepared as if you were going to get up and teach for Pastor Damien on a Sunday morning. Because it's no different in the eyes of God, the level of accountability that we have to get up and proclaim the Word of God and be prepared to do it. And so as we began to minister to them, so I'm driving home from work. Just a couple months later, I come home from work, and I, I kind of was running late. I called my wife, meet me at the church. And we met at the church for the Wednesday night service. I still have my suit and tie on. I'm sitting in the front row. And the church secretary comes out from the pastor's office and 
hey, Dave, come here. I go, what's that? Pastor John wants to talk to you. I go into his office thinking he needs me to help him with something. I walk into his office, he's not there. The phone's off the hook. I pick up the phone, he says, Dave, I'm stuck in the airport in Seattle, you're teaching. I, 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 I'm, I'm teaching when? He said, oh, they're probably about halfway through worship by now. You, got, you probably got 15 minutes anyway. I'm like, dude, that ain't right. That is just not right. I mean, six girls around the table. I mean, again, I'm accountable, but if I mess up, I mean, there's six girls around the table. They're, they're 13. I mean, I'm going to be the whole church. I'm, in my, I'm a young guy. I, you got, you're out of your mind, right? And I remember opening my Bible, I had no notes, and I'm like, what in, I got, what? I taught James chapter 1, can't all join my brother when you fall into various trials, because I was in one, you know what I mean? <laughs> Teach from where you are, right? And that's what I did. And over time, I ended up doing the men's ministry, and the, it wasn't long before I, he asked me to do some Sunday mornings. And, and you know what God did is, because my personality is to strive, God did the exact opposite for me, where I've never asked for any ministry I've ever done. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask. I just felt in my own life, I needed to wait. So everything I ever did was where the pastor would come and say, hey, would you do this? And I'd, I'd pray, okay. Hey, would you do this? Okay. And so I would just be faithful with whatever God was doing, and if God wanted me to do more, then God would open a door. And that's exactly what has happened my entire life. I spent 10 years there. Eventually the pastor called me in on Wednesday night. By this time I was doing youth, I was doing the men's, and I was teaching in the prison every week and teach for him on Sundays because he was gone a lot. And he called me in one week and just said, uh, on a Wednesday night, I said, have your wife take the kids home. I'll give you a ride. And after church, he, he said, effective immediately, you're not doing any more ministry here. I said, really? He said, I've turned the men's over to so-and-so. I've turned the youth over to so-and-so. I've turned the prison over to so-and-so. Okay, here's the last ten Sunday mornings you talk for me. Here's the pastor's wanted list. And here's a recommendation letter. Now go do what God's told you to do. You're done here. I'm, I'm keeping you from doing God's will. You'd stay here forever if I didn't kick you out. And I went, okay then. <laughs> Good enough. So I started calling all the, all the people on the pastor's wanted list. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. I don't know if they still have it. But you call them and they all want you to come. You know, you call people Montana. You know, hi, it's, I saw you in the pastor's wanted list. Oh, are you thinking about coming? Yeah, come on. You know, so everybody wants you to come. So now you're like, well, then which one of these am I supposed to go to? In the meantime, I came up to visit my parents, and they were going to Don's, Pastor Don McClure's church in San Jose, and I said, go meet with Don. I go to meet with him, and he says, I've got 100 people up in Fremont, and I'm looking for someone to come pastor up here. Why don't you pray about that? So now I've got like eight places to pick from. I just prayed. I fasted. I prayed. I went to work on Monday, and my boss came by my desk and said, aren't you originally from Northern California? There's an opening in San Jose. Would you have any interest in that? And I thought, man. You know, God knows how thick I am, so he just hits me over the head with a two-by-four to make it very clear. And so I put in for the job, but I show up, I put my house on the market, I move some renters into it, I move my family out of the place they've lived in for 10 years, which my, praise God for my wife, because she recognizes the calling on my life, and it's not easy for her to move, but she did. We moved to San Jose, and the Sunday we were supposed to meet with Don to meet all the Fremont people, he got up and announced that Tim Brown was going to Fremont. So I have moved my family to go to Fremont, we get there, and he announces that Tim Brown's going to Fremont. And so my wife and I are looking at each other like, okay, well, I guess we're not going to Fremont. So he said, why don't you go to Gilroy? So we went to Gilroy, and eventually I ended up becoming the youth pastor in San Jose for six more years. Uh, again, not something I wanted to do. He asked me three times, do you know anybody who'd be interested in working with the youth? I'm like, no, not, not a person. Now he knew I'd done youth for 10 years. I, he was asking me without asking. I have no idea. Then the second time he said, do you think there's, you have a friend, somebody could call? Uh, no. 
Then finally he said, third lunch, do you think you might help out in there? I said, well, I'll help. I'm not going to be the youth pastor. <laughs> I remember saying that. So you don't tell God anything, right? <laughs> and I went into the youth group to help, and my heart broke. And there was a young man, I'll never forget his name, but Josh Peters, he came up to me and said, oh, so you're, you're going to be our new youth guy, huh? He goes, oh, you'll be here six months. They all are. They teach through the Gospel of John, they leave. That's what he told me. I went home and I wept, and, I, and God put on my heart, go back and tell those kids you're going to be there to see all of them graduate. And so I went the following Sunday and told them all I'd be there to see them all graduate, and praise God, I saw that all the high schoolers graduate and all the way down to the seventh graders, so I was there for almost six years. Well, I was teaching on Sunday morning, and God put on my heart, I was done at San Jose. Kind of a neat story is that after the message, my little brother, who I did not even know was there, I had an altar call, he came down from the balcony. Um, to rededicate or give his life to the Lord. And I didn't know he was in the building. A bunch of people had gotten saved that day. And after the message, I walked out, and my dad was waiting for me. I don't know if he remembers this or not, but he had a letter he had written during the message on the back of the bulletin. I still have it in my drawer. And God had told, put on my heart, not an audible voice, during the message, you're done here. Time for you to go plant a church. Time for you to go and do what I've called you to do. And after the message, I went out, and my dad handed me the letter that he had written, and it said, Son... God told me during the message today that you're done here. And that your mom and I are supposed to go with you wherever you go, and I'm supposed to hold up your hands and serve with you. So when we both got done weeping, we, I made an appointment with Pastor Don, and I went in to meet with him, and when I met with him, I, I told him, I'll go to Beijing, China, because again, I don't want to strive. You tell me where to go, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. So he named a city in North Carolina where he knew some people, and I said, okay. They named Tracy, I, okay. Then he named uh, San Mateo, where the pastor was just leaving. There was a bunch of places he named, and I kept saying, okay. And then finally he goes, you know, Dave, the place I've always thought you belonged is Santa Cruz. I said, oh, that's the one place I can't go. <laughs> I can't go there. There's no way I can't go to Santa Cruz. No, no, no. I went to high school there. I've been there. No thanks, right? You know, anywhere but there. Ichabod, the glory has departed. I'm not interested. In <laughs> not Santa Cruz. And uh, so that's what happens when you try to tell God. So here we are seven years later. And I can tell you this much. Pastor Ron gave me some great counseling when I left. He said, you need to know that you know that you know that you're called to go where you go. Because if you don't know you're called to be there, the first problem you have, you're going to have two problems. The problem that you're facing and was I, what, was I called to be here or not. But if you know that God called you, then all the problems are God's problems. And from the day we got here, we ran into roadblocks. We'd show up at church and have a lesbian uh, group meeting in our room. We're supposed to meet and we'd have church out in the parking lot. And we'd show up, and I mean, there were just roadblocks all over the place, and the church did not grow very quickly right away. Uh, I think we were, I think everybody but me thought it wasn't going to work, truthfully. I mean, they didn't say that out loud, but, you know, I think, oh, this just isn't happening. We've been here a year, we have 40 people, 35 people, whatever the number was. But you know what, I, I can tell you this, I felt confident that God called me, and I'm called to be here for the rest of my life. God can do with me whatever he wants, but I'm called to be here no matter what. And the fruit is up to him. Amen? Amen. We're just called to be faithful, to be diligent. And if five people show up, then you minister to those five people. Instead of worrying about the empty chairs, you minister to who shows up, and you do it faithfully. And you pray for them, and you minister to them. And you have the best fed, most loved sheep. And you know what? Santa Cruz needs Jesus big time. And by his grace, he's drawn people here and... You know, we have a, a, a great pastoral staff, some really spiritually mature guys that are a blessing. And again, we're in another kind of a transition time right now. But all that does is make me excited because I know that God's going to do something great. So let me encourage you. Two words, and people call me and ask me, Pastor Dave, I'm thinking about going and starting a new work. Do you have any counsel for me? 
Is there anything you can tell me? So I could tell you a lot, but I, I, I try to limit it to two words. And these are the two words that we should all remember. The first one is be desperate. You need to stay desperate. When you cease to be desperate, you'll cease to be effective. Because you'll start resting in your own ability. You'll start resting in yourself. We need to be the, you know, if I want my people, if I want our people in our church to pray more, I need to pray more. If I want people in our church to be people who I need to be a man of the word. If I want them to be, you know, people who lay down their lives for their wives, I need to do it. You know, I need to be the one, and I need to stay desperate and stay at his feet and keep resting in him and trusting in him. And here we are almost, you know, 20 years later since I started doing and I'm just as desperate on a Sunday morning today as I was when I got the call with 15 minutes to go teach. And if I ever get to the place where I'm not that person anymore, I'll stop. Because then I'm going to be trusting in myself. And we need, to, we need to realize what a privilege it is and how awesome it is to get up and proclaim God's word to, to two five-year-olds or to, you know, thousands as Damien does on a Sunday morning. The other word, along with being desperate, is be disciplined. You know, and, I, and, and don't take this wrong, sometimes it sound wrong, but you be desperate like it all depends on God, you be disciplined like it all depends on you. You know, when you study, and I've heard people say this, well, I just go up there and let the Holy Spirit speak. Uh, I don't think so. You know, that's not, again, now, if you have 15 minutes notice, God knows you have 15 minutes notice. But if you have an entire week to prepare and you spend 15 minutes in preparation, don't blame it on the Holy Spirit. Amen? You need to be disciplined and spending time in His presence and seeking His face and spending time in God's Word. And you know what? When you get up to teach the Word of God to somebody, that chapter ought to be a part of you. The Holy Spirit should have taken it and written it upon your heart. It ought to be flowing right out of you when you get up to teach. Now, I have to tell you this. All these years later, I'm still pretty slow. I still take 20, 15, 20, 25 hours per message in preparation. Well, if you're teaching twice a week and you're working a full-time job, that means you're pretty busy. But you know what? People say, well, Pastor Dave, you stay up every Saturday night studying. I feel sorry for you. And I tell them this. I feel sorry for you. You were napping. I was hanging out with Almighty God. Who got, who got the short end of that stick, right? You were asleep. I was hanging out with Jesus. Holy Spirit was ministering to my heart. You know what? He gives me the strength I need. So God's not going to call you anything to do anything that he won't give you the strength to do. Amen? Amen. So be encouraged. All of us get there different. You know, God's got his own path for each one of us, the way he's going to direct us. But no matter where you are, no matter what ministry you're in, don't look at the ministry somebody else has. Don't envy what somebody else is doing. God will often put you in the very place that doesn't make any sense to you. That way he gets glorified. Amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul would have been the perfect guy for the Jews, and God sent him to the Gentiles. Peter would have been the perfect guy for the Gentiles, and he sent him to the. He sent a fisherman to the Jews, and he sent a Pharisee to the Gentiles. Why did he do that? Just to show that he's God, and he's the one who's doing all of it. Amen. Amen. Instead of, oh, well, you'd be so great with so and so because of your background. It's all him, and he gets all the glory. All right, Acts chapter twenty. Part of a pastor. I want to talk to you about this. Now, this is something that burns in my heart to the point where I actually. Uh, my dad and I, not long ago, I flew down to talk to Pastor Chuck about this because I am really burdened for the next generation of Calvary Chapel. And let me tell you why. God has done a great and an awesome work in this movement because this movement has been faithful to the Word of God. But you know what? Every movement that has become a memorial over time has one thing in common. They get away from God's Word. You know, you see the, you know, the Methodist church started well. The Episcopal church started well. The Presbyterian church started well. And some of them, you know, the Lutheran church started well. If Martin Luther walked around, he'd be nailing something to the Lutheran church's door today. But here's the problem. The problem is this. 
The problem is that they start well, but then the movement becomes a memorial as soon as they get away from God's Word. It, oh, remember what used to happen. Remember what used to happen. And we'll, be t- we'll just be talking about the hippie days and the Jesus movement, but I truly believe the greater days of this movement can be in front of us than behind us. But it's only going to happen if we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, we stay passionate for Him, and we teach the Word of God with the same zeal and the same Holy Spirit power as they did back in the 70s. Amen? Amen. Do people need Jesus today just as much as they did then? If they don't think so, go down the mall when you're done here. Just drive down the mall, Pacific Garden Mall, and you'll see Haight-Ashbury still alive today in Santa Cruz. People still need Jesus just as desperately. And so my passion, every time I get a chance to share with people who are in ministry, those who may go and plant a church someday or serving with the children's ministry, whatever God's called you to do, is to go back to this, what I believe is a real picture of the very first pastor's conference in in history. And it's in Acts 20. So let's give give you some real background here real quick, and we'll go through this. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you eight points to a pastor's heart, eight things you're going to see in Paul's heart that should be evident in our hearts as well. So we come to this point, Paul's on his third missionary journey, and much like Jesus, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem to do the Father's will. So Paul is determined to finish his course with joy, no matter what the cost would be. I mean, I love, the, I love the Apostle Paul. What an example for all of us. And as he's headed toward Jerusalem on this third missionary journey, he's visiting the churches where he, established church, where he had established churches. He's going back and, you know, I'm headed to Jerusalem where he thinks he may be you know, put to death. He knows that's what is before him. He's still headed there because God's given him a passion to be there. The only way he'd be going to Jerusalem with that heart is if God gave him a passion, just like the only way God may send you to the place where you're going. And and he was going along the way as he went to encourage and strengthen the saints that uh, they might stand true to the Lord, they might finish, and at the same time taking up collection for those who are hurting in Jerusalem. Now one thing, again, I love about Paul, he was truly a fanatic. You know, the word gets thrown around a lot. And he was a fanatic. Now, what does a, a fanatic mean? You know, everywhere he went, he started either a revival or a riot. And often both. When Paul showed up in town, everybody knew it. Something happened. Amen? You know, my prayer would be that everybody would know that we're here in Santa Cruz because this place is being impacted. Some people might not like that we're here, but that's okay. Because I found, you know, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one you hit, right? And the people that are convicted the most means God's doing something. And so... Praise God that if you know, we're stirring some things up, always do it in love. But what is a, fan, a fanatic is someone who's defined as you can't change his mind and he won't change the subject. And that was Paul. Paul was just relentless and faithful and about it. He had a one-track mind. He was a passionate man. But we're going to see as we go through and look at, the, at his heart. It starts in verse 7. I'm not going to read these first few verses because you know, I don't want to have you guys fallen out on me here like the guy does in this chapter, but uh, at one point here, verses 7 through 12, we're going to see that Paul stays up all night teaching the Word. Now, Paul would work all day making tents, or, or traveling in this case, and he's teaching to a bunch of people, many of whom have been up working all day. We know the story that Eutychus, he falls out the window because he's exhausted. It's been a long day. He lands on the ground, and I love the picture that Paul not only ministered to the crowd, but he goes down and he lays on top of this guy, falls on him, and he embraces him. So, and, and, and we see this guy resurrected. Now, what I love about that for me, it's a picture that Paul not only ministered to the masses, but he ministered to the individual. And I think it's so important in the heart of anyone in ministry is that we be just as diligent, again, to prepare for three as we would 3,000, 
and we take just as much time with each individual if there's 3,000 as if there were only three. We never are too busy for anyone. Guys, your time is not your own. If, you, if you're going to try to reserve your time and it's going to be about you, you're, you, don't, you shouldn't be in the ministry. But you know what? If God's called you, it's all his. Amen? And it's a job. People say, well, man, Pastor Dave, you're going to burn out. You will burn out only if you're operating in your flesh. The Holy Spirit never burns out. And the Apostle Paul, we see here, had a heart for the masses, but he has a heart for this one guy who fell. He could have said, what a weak brother, man. Fell out the window. I'm here preaching my guts out. He falls asleep. What kind of guy is that? He doesn't do that. Instead, he reaches out to him. I love his heart. In verses 13 through 16, Paul set sail again to... Now, I love this part. It says, look at this, let's read it, verse 13. It says, then we, we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilion. Now, what's interesting is he'd been up preaching all night, and then when it was time to go, he sent them ahead on ship, and he went by foot. And what I love about this is this tells me one thing, and again, my opinion. I believe he wanted to spend some time alone with the Lord. I believe that Paul had been up all night, had been teaching, everybody's up late, and they're going in a boat, and he thought, you know what, I need some time alone with God. And so he took some time alone with the Lord. And I think it's so important, guys, you can't minister this way if you're not ministering this way. If you're not spending time at his feet, you're not spending time in his presence, all you're going to give out is you, and that's of no value to anyone. We need to be pouring out what God's poured into us. We need to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, desperate for God, spending time in His presence, and allowing what He pours into us to be poured out on others. So Paul, this pastor's heart, says, We sailed from there. The next day came to opposite to Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos, Trigilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Now, here's the part where I want to pick up. Look at verse 17. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So, this is the first recorded, in my mind, pastor's conference. He calls for the elders in Ephesus, the city where he had planted a church, and he calls them all to come so he can minister to them. He can spend time with them. Now, I love this. The word elder there uh, doesn't speak of someone's age, but it speaks of their spiritual maturity. The same word is later, the same uh, word can also be called overseers. Uh, we also see the word bishop being interchangeable, and also the word pastor. So elder describes the man, he's spiritually mature. The bishop describes the ministry, he's an overseer. And pastor describes the method, he's a feeder or a shepherd. So Paul's called together these spiritual leaders in Ephesus. He's brought them all into himself, and he's going to pour out his heart to them. And he's going to share with them, thinking maybe this will be the last time I ever see them. So now Paul's about to share with these pastors what a pastor is to be. He's going to give them examples. And you and I have the privilege, because God wrote it down by the power of the Holy Spirit, to listen into this first ever pastor's conference that is just as applicable today as it was when it was written 2,000 years ago. So, if you're taking notes, the first thing we're going to see in a pastor's heart, number one, we're going to see a heart to lead by example. Look what it says there. And when they had come to him, he said to them, verse 18, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. 
He didn't just want to teach them the word, but he wanted to live it out in front of them. And he could stand up in front of them and say to them, you know, you've seen the way that I've lived my life. You know what? As people, as Christians, whether you're in ministry or not, Lord, help us to live such lives that we can be examined that way. Amen? We can stand up and we can tell people, you, you know, live as I have lived. If you're a parent, it needs to start there. Your kids need to be able to see Jesus in you. See Jesus in your marriage and in your home. And notice it says the first part of that verse, and when they had come to him. So one of the greatest abilities in the kingdom is availability. These elders had jobs, family obligations, responsibility. But when Paul called them, they came. God's kingdom was their priority. They dropped everything to go see Paul, to hear from the Lord, and to be ministered to. Guys, we can be so busy about our daily, you know, pursuing the things of this world that we miss out on the things of God. And we see here that when he called for them, they dropped everything and they came. And you know what? That needs to be our heart, availability. The greatest, it's been said the greatest ability is availability. And these pastors, these elders, were extremely available. Paul called them. God was their first priority. They dropped everything they came. Then he says there in verse 18, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was blameless. He was without accusation. He'd given himself completely to the work of the Lord. It wasn't just do as I say, but do as I do. So the first thing we see in the heart of a pastor is the heart to lead by example. And you know what? We need to have that heart. The heart to lead by example. Not to just preach at people. Not to tell people how they ought to be living their lives. But to live out a God-fearing life in front of them. The second thing we see, along with a heart to lead by example in verse 19. The second thing is a humble heart. Now look what it says. It says, In what manner I always lived among you, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. This guy was truly one of the most gifted men who ever lived. The Apostle Paul's credentials, intellectually, theologically, as an orator, miracles followed him wherever he went, and yet he remained humble because he knew each of those abilities and gifts came from God and that all the glory belonged to him. He, he served with humility, and he could even say that he served with humility. Guys, you know what? I love this analogy. Uh, I used to share it when I was a youth pastor for years. Many years ago, I came to visit my parents. I was still living in Southern California, and I came up on Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Day, I got the worst toothache of my life. I was, I was in so much pain, I couldn't stand it. And, you know, I open up the phone book and start calling dentists. Now, trying to get a hold of a dentist on Thanksgiving Day, not so much. No one's answering their phone. But I am in so much pain, I just keep calling. Finally, I find an emergency number. A dentist answers at home, and he, and he says, I'll meet you down at my office, but I'm going to charge you double. I'm like, look, you can have my car. I don't care. You've got to fix my tooth, you know. Just please help, right? So I get to the office, and he doesn't have an assistant there. He does it all himself, and, you know, he, he, did, he ends up having to do a root canal, and, and he did the whole thing, and he fixed me up and put a temporary crown. And, now imagine if when he was all done, I grabbed the drill out of his hand. I said, oh, thank you, drill. You're such an awesome drill. Thank you so much for what you've done for me. That would be so foolish. Because you know what? That drill is nothing without the dentist, right? And guys, all we are is a tool in the hand of the master. And we don't deserve any more recognition or glory than the drill does in the hand of the dentist. You know what? God gets all the glory because we're nothing without him. Amen? And I found this to be true. If I took that same dentist drill and used it myself, I'd have done more damage to my tooth than I would have done good, right? 
And if I'm doing things outside of being in God's hands, I'm going to do more damage than I'm going to do good. We need to be tools in the hands of our master. We need to continually recognize it's all him. He's the one who does it. And so we see that he had a humble heart. It says, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. You know what? He remained faithful in the face of great trials. He remained humble. He remained desperate for God. So we've seen that a pastor's heart is a heart to lead by example. He's got a humble heart. And now we're going to see in verses 20 and 21, he's got a heart for the lost, the heart of an evangelist. And by the way, I want to say this. As Christians, we don't go witnessing. We are witnesses. Amen? We're going to go witnessing Saturday from 10 to 11. And and again, that's great. God bless you if you're doing that. But I would hope we're being witnesses more than an hour a week. Amen? There's 167 other hours that we're witnesses. We don't go witnessing. So the third thing we see is a heart for the lost. Look what it says there in verse 20. He says, How I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now guys, he taught both publicly to the crowds, he taught in the school of Tyrannus, he's taught in synagogues, but he also went house to house. In a city filled with idolatry and immorality, he did not water down the gospel to fit the culture. Guys, we are not to change the gospel to be more popular with the world. Amen? You know, the seeker-sensitive movement that's, that's blowing up today is, you know, let's ask the world what they want in a church and then give them that. And how about we do this? Let's do what God told us the church to be and give them that. Amen? Because that's exactly what they need. Because it says he not only taught publicly and from house to house, but then it tells you what he taught. It's one thing to teach. It's another thing, what did he teach? Here's what he taught. Look at verse 21. Testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you underline stuff in your Bible, you should underline that verse. He got up and he taught repentance. You know, Jesus taught repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist taught repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Apostle Paul taught, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What should we be teaching today? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Amen. Message hasn't changed. If anything, we need to be, we're closer to the return of Christ today than they were then. Amen? We need to be preaching it all the more and with greater amount of passion. He preached repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Not seven ways to overcome your anger. Right? Not three ways to deal with his financial freedom, and not 40 days of purpose. Amen? Oh, Pastor Dave getting all kinds of direct. Well, hey, amen. <laughs> the, point is, the point is that we can get so distracted to teach something other than the Bible. Guys, we've got 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. And we need to teach all of this before we worry about teaching anything else. Amen? And teach it with passion, guys. We've got, we got the answer. This is the answer book for life. Let's teach it, and let's not be ashamed of it. And Paul was not. He taught, turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. One guy, when he was in front of a huge crowd, he saw every... Every time he was in front of a crowd, it was an opportunity to share his faith. He saw it as a blessing, as an opportunity in the midst of trials. You know, remember when they grabbed him and they were going to arrest him, and they're dragging him away? And what does he do? 
He, they stop him, he's up in a higher place, and he looks down and says, sweet, i got all these people here. And he starts preaching to them. When they chained him up and he was in chains, you know what he thought? Captive audience. Dude, i got you for 12 hours. You're going to hear every bit of the gospel, right? And so no matter what his circumstances, his focus, his passion was always the same, to proclaim the word of God. He had a heart for the lost. I know you've heard it said, every believer this side of heaven should be burned for every unbeliever this side of hell. And you know what? He was passionate about the word of God. He couldn't help but hear him proclaiming the gospel. I'll just take a quick side note. You know, I praise God. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who have kids who aren't married yet, I praise God for my son-in-law. I prayed for him every day from the day my daughter was born for the man she would marry one day. And I had standards for my son-in-law, ask Pat, you know, like up here. My, I would not let my daughter date. I would not let my daughter go, I, no dating, no boy go parties, nothing. God has a man for you. You're 14. You're not married yet, so no thanks. That's not happening. And you know what? I, I tell my kids on the first day of high school, I love you enough to have you be mad at me for the next four years if that's what it takes. I, you know what? I'm going to be your dad, and that's it. And I'm going to wait. And you know what? Guys would come and ask my daughter out, and she, you know, I don't know what she'd think. I was going to change my mind, but she'd come home and say, well, Dad, what about? No. No. Absolutely not. Can I go to this party? You can be a boy, sir? No. You can't go. But, Dad, don't you trust me? I said, well, I, I trust you. It's the guys I don't trust, and you're not going to be around them. That's it. It's just that simple. And my wife would even, oh, come on. No, absolutely not. But here's what I would say. The guy that God has for you is going to blow doors on every one of these guys. He'll be worth the wait, I promise. And you know what? My daughter met her husband on our Israel trip. And they spent some time together. Now, he's one of the youth pastors here. But what was really neat is about three months before they got married, she wrote me a long letter saying, Dad, you were right. He was worth the wait. But what made me think about this is I can't go anywhere with my son-in-law without him witnessing to somebody. We go to Burger King, he's handing out tracks at Burger King. We're in line, he's handing out tracks. Everywhere I go with him, he's handing out, he puts me to, I'm like, dude, I, I don't need to witness more. I mean, he's witnessing to everybody. It doesn't matter where we go. I go to the bathroom, I come out, he's got four guys with tracks, he's praying with them. I'm like, wow. You know? And I think, you know what? I think that's the heart. And it's so sad that that's unusual in the church today. That ought to be Christians. Amen? Isn't that, the, isn't that what we have? We have the hope. We have the truth. That was Paul's heart. That ought to be a pastor's heart. That ought to be a Christian's heart, a heart for the lost. Number four, a pastor's heart, a, how, a heart bound by and led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, See now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Why did he go to Jerusalem? Because the Holy Spirit was leading him. Paul was filled with, led by, comforted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Remember that he breathed the Holy Spirit in them. Jesus did. When they were saved, the Holy, they received the Holy Spirit in them. But there's something greater. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them. I believe it's what happened to me. My car parked on the side of the road on the way home from Anaheim Convention Center is that the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life came upon me. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you know what? He's empowered by and led by the Holy Spirit as he's headed to Jerusalem. Even though danger and potential death awaited, he would not be discouraged when faced with trials or tribulations or circumstances. Why wasn't he discouraged? You know what? Paul had already been stoned at this point, hadn't he? Right? Talk about a fanatic. He stoned you to death outside of a city. 
I personally believe, just my opinion, that he died, and that's when he went up into the third heaven. And you know what happened? He came back, and he thought, dude, I've seen heaven. You can't, you can't threaten me with that. I'm going right back into the city. He went right back in there. He threw rocks at me until I was dead. Throw them again. I don't care. Because if I die, I'm going to be in the presence of Almighty God. You know, to be with you guys is good. Be with God far better. And that's the heart that Paul had. And again, as pastors and as ministers and as Christians, we ought to have that same heart being led by the Holy Spirit. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We have nothing to be afraid of because God is in control. This man had been stoned and scourged and beaten and shipwrecked, you know, could have just quit. Could have just said, you know what, that's enough. I'm not doing this anymore. But you know, he was a man who was led by the Holy Spirit, and he couldn't but do the very things that God had called him to do. And so the Holy Spirit was the one leading him. The Holy Spirit was the one empowering him. He says, I go bound in the Holy Spirit. I pray that we'd be bound by and led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. Then it says this. This is Pastor Don McClure's life verse. It says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Because he knew that God had called him, he was gripped by his calling, and he didn't look for the easy way out. Again, going back to what Pastor Don told me, know that you're called. If you know that you're called, the problems are God's problems. Anything that happens, God put it there for a reason. Trust him. Paul knew he was called. Here's a, something that my pastor in Lancaster told me when I asked him, how do I know I'm called? He said, Dave, if you can do anything else, you're not called. If you go do something else, go do it. If God's called you, you can't. You're not going to have peace in anything else but what God has called you to do. And you know what we need more of in the church today? Called Christians who respond in obedience to the calling God's place on their life. Amen? It's amazing what God can do with one called man or one called woman who responds in faithful obedience. Too often we're looking for someone else to do it. We need to obey what God's called us to do. If no one else is responding to their calling, that has nothing to do with you. You do what you're called to do, and you do it with your whole heart, and you do it faithfully to the Lord. Paul knew he was called. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because Paul knew he was called, his life was no longer his own. It had been purchased with a price. He would later say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we know that God has called us. The struggles are his. And guys, when you're doing what God's called you to do, even in the midst of difficulty, there's a deep joy. Can I tell you something? That calling should be a get-to and not a have-to. If it's a have-to, quit doing it. If you're, you know, if you're serving in the children's ministry, oh my, it's my week. Don't, do, do those kids, should they have someone who's passionate about being in front of them? who's called by God, should they have anything less? Absolutely not. And you know what? If you're, if you're doing it out of a have-to, if you're doing it out of a drudgery, if you're doing it because, you know, to try to, you know, win Pastor Pat's uh, favor, stop. Do it because God's called you, amen? And do it in a way that will honor him. It's a get-to. It's not a have-to. For Paul, it was a joy to serve, and physical circumstances would not all alter his eternal perspective. And I'll say this, too. If God puts you in a position where you're encouraging others in ministry, don't call anyone to do anything. Let God do that. Amen? Don't, don't, I don't, you know, hey, you know, I think you should. Hey, I think you, I'll let, you know, I'll pull up Pastor Don. Hey, we have a need in this area. Pray about it. I want the Lord to call people, not me. If I call them, I've got to sustain them. 
If I call him, I have to call him in a month. Are you are you practicing? Are you really prepared? You know, are you going to show up on time, please? You know, I mean, if that's it, that yeah, I don't want that person. You want the person that's going to run through the wall to serve God. Amen. I said, get to. It's a joy. It's a, I can't believe I get to do this. Guys, and I'll say this. Every calling is a high calling no matter what it is because God's called you to do it. Amen? And if you're doing it for God, it's a high calling and it's a joy. And again, if you call them, you have to sustain them. If God calls them, he will. So nothing would move him because he knew he was called. He knew God was in it. He was going to be faithful to whatever God called him to do. He, again, had a heart bound by the Spirit. But he also, as we're going to continue to see, he has a heart focused on eternity. He says in verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, I want to say this. You will see my face no more. Now let me ask you a question. These are guys he discipled for a couple years apiece. He looks at them in the face and says, Okay, this is the last thing I'm ever going to say to you. You think it might have a little more significance. You know, Jesus' last words, what did he say as he was ascending into heaven? Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Great commission was the last words that Jesus said to the disciples as he was ascending back into heaven. Again, those final words. So what are the final words? What are the final things that, that the Apostle Paul is going to say to these guys? He spent years discipling and now he's, you know, I'm never going to see you again. I've got one, one last thing to say to you. What is he going to say? Look what he says. Verse 26 again, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What did he say to him? Teach the whole counsel. I am innocent because I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? That means somebody who is in ministry who does not declare the whole counsel of God is guilty. I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God, to feed the sheep, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. As a man called by God to shepherd the flock, what was his number one responsibility to feed them? Remember Peter. Jesus appears to Peter. And when he appears to him after he denied him three times, he has fish cooking. Peter shows up. He calls him in off the, off the boat. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, no, love you. And what does he say? Feed my sheep. How does a pastor show, one of the ways he shows his love for God is he feeds the sheep. You love me? Feed the sheep. Peter, love me? Feed the sheep. Dave, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Sunday school worker, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Pastor, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He doesn't say, you know, we are to love the sheep, but if we minister to them, it's out of our love for God. So the number seven thing we see in the heart of a pastor, he has, or number six, excuse me, he has a heart for God's word. So he has a heart bound by the Spirit, a heart focused on eternity, and a heart for God's word. He teach the whole counsel of God in proportion to the way it was given to us. Guys, if we teach verse by verse through the Bible, we're going to teach the entire Bible. He says, I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Guys, Leviticus is just as inspired as Luke. Amen? Amen? And God, you know, it's amazing. You know, we're on the radio, and our most requested CDs by far have been Leviticus. Because people are blown away that anybody ever taught that. I don't know. I didn't know anybody ever taught that before. And they're really blown away that Jesus is in every chapter of Leviticus. Because he's in every chapter of the Old Testament. And I have a concern. I think I shared this with you again. That, you know, just as Leviticus is inspired as Luke, and Ruth is as Romans, 
I have a concern that I listen to the radio, I'll listen for a half an hour, and I have no idea what book the guy's teaching out of. Has that ever happened to you before? He teaches for half, what, what's the text? You know, if you're teaching for 45 minutes, you're teaching one verse, there's too much of you. Amen? You know, now I'm going to give you six of God's word and then 55,000 of mine, right? And here's the point, more of God's words and less of mine. If I'm teaching the one verse for an hour, there's too much, Dave. And we need to give more of God's word. Again, what happens when we have less and less of the word of God and more and more of our opinions, the movement will become a memorial because we'll be getting away from the word of God. When we de-emphasize the word of God, God will not move among his people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by. That's our theme verse, Romans 10, 17. We want to see people's faith grow, give them God's word. We want to see people more passionate for God, give them God's word. You want to see people, want to see this, your city, this county changed? Give them the word of God. And, well, but I'm teaching the seven-year-olds. What do you think the seven-year-olds need? The word of God. God's word, unless you're under 12. No, God's word. You know what? I was four and a half. Praise God for Mrs. Green teaching the word of God to four-year-olds. Because I got saved. And you know what? Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz is fruit of her ministry to four and five-year-olds at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington in 1967. Here we are 40 years later, and this is fruit of her ministry. Why? Because she taught the Word of God to four and five-year-olds. Guys, may we teach the whole counsel of God. And guys, God's Word is also sufficient to solve any problem we have today. And you know what I found when I was a youth pastor? What you win people with is what you win them to. If you win them with a skate park, you're going to win them to the skate park. Right? Now, I'm not saying you can't have a skate park and preach the gospel. That's okay. But if you win them with a skate park, you take the skate park down, all the kids are going to be gone. You know, if you win them with the Flying Walendas, you win them to the Flying Walendas. If you win them with, the, you know, dramas and sermonettes for Christianettes, that's what you want them to. But if you win them with the Word of God, you want them to the God of the Word. Amen? So remember that what you give them is so important. God's Word doesn't need 12 steps of help. It doesn't need theories of dead atheists, right? We don't need psychology. We got the Word of God, amen? He is the mighty counselor. This is sufficient. People, when people come for counseling, I just say, look, I don't have the answers. I just know where they are, amen? I got the Bible. Let me just show you what God says, not what do I think or what do I feel. Our feelings lie to us all day, don't they? Word of God is sufficient. Counsel people from God's Word, not the foolishness of men. So we've seen that he has a heart to lead by example, a humble heart, a heart for the lost, a heart bound to the Spirit, a heart focused on eternity. Again, that's why he could continue on and not be moved by anything. A heart for God's Word, and finally, a heart for God's people, the heart of a shepherd. Look what it says there, last few verses, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Wow. The, the ministry that you have oversight over, God purchased with his own blood. How you determine the value of something when somebody's willing to pay for it. What did he pay? He paid with his own blood. He sent his own son. How valuable is it to God, the ministry he's given you to oversee? He paid for it with his own life. Again, notice what it says, or I love this part, it says, take heed to yourselves. So the first thing we do is take heed to ourselves. We start with our own walk with God, our own intimate fellowship with Him. 
times of prayer, times of personal devotions. Minister to the Lord that we might minister for the Lord. Love poured out on the flock flows from our own personal intimate walk with God. I can tell you right now the number one way God speaks to me is in my devotional time with him. Number one by far. He'll speak to me through pastors. He'll speak, but the number one way he speaks to me is when I'm spending time with him one-on-one. That's when he ministers most to my heart. Take heed to yourselves first. So spend time yourself in the word first. And to all the flock. Okay, again, by the Holy Spirit, not the votes of men. They were called by God. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, it's not who's popular that ought to be serving. It's who God has called. Amen? Early on, he doesn't go to church anymore, so I can say it. I had a really close friend who was kind of telling me, well, you need to be doing this, and we need to be doing that, and we need to be doing this, and we need to be doing that, and if we don't do this, and I'm not going to, you know. And we've been friends since high school. I remember one day he came over to my cubicle at work and said, if we don't do this and this and this, then I'm leaving. I said, I'm going to miss you. Because if I have to obey you or God, it's no, it's no problem. It's not even a choice. Again, we should love people, but we obey God. Amen? And we're faithful to what God has told us to do. We don't listen to what men say. The Holy Spirit is the one who raises people up. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you learn to be the servant of all. And I'll tell you where I found every one of our pastors, what I see in them first and foremost is the heart of a servant. It's the guy who's the last guy there putting away chairs with sweat running down his back. That's the ego. You know what? God's got a calling in that person's life. Someone who faithfully and, and serves when nobody's watching and doesn't care. And when we're called by the Holy Spirit, then you know what? It's, it, it shows. It wasn't the voice of men. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us, the Holy Spirit who will, who will sustain us. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church. The word shepherd means to feed and to protect, that they might be strong. And the church that he purchased again with his own blood. Remember, the sheep are his, not ours. Amen? They're his. So God says, you know, imagine God, you know, Almighty God shows up and says, okay, this is my child who I died for, and I, is my treasure possession. I'm the creator of the universe, and I treasure. And these four three-year-olds, they're mine. And I want you to watch them for me for the next 45 minutes. Here you go. How should we take care of them? How should we minister to them? You know, show, oh, is it my day? Oh, what's the lesson? I'll, I'll throw a ball out in the place. And toy, is that what we're supposed to do? Or should we show up, prayed up, prepared? You know, there are pictures on the refrigerator praying for them throughout the week. Amen? Isn't that who you want teaching your children? And that's who the Lord, how the Lord wants us ministering to his. And he says that he purchased with his own blood, and, and here's the warning, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember, for the three years I did not cease to warn you every night, every day and night with tears. So now, therefore, brethren, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I'm not going to finish the chapter where he starts talking about the dangers that can happen within the body. But notice that he warns them that there are going to be those who come in and teach uh, a lie. You know, when I teach on Sunday morning, I'm always mindful that I need to teach the whole counsel of God because these guys are getting told lies all week long. When I was a youth pastor, I would think, you know, some of these kids have had 30 hours at a school that has taught them that they evolved from monkeys, that sex outside of marriage is okay, that homosexuality is, is just another lifestyle. But, you know, you start going down the list of all the lies they've been taught, and then should I get up and apologize for the Word of God for the 45 minutes I've got with these teenagers? 
Or should I get up and understand the 30 hours of lies that have been bombarding them, the savage wolves that could even come within the body of Christ, call themselves Christians, and teach a false gospel? Or should we take the precious time we have to disciple them, to minister to them, to pour out the truth to them, and to speak it with great boldness? Again, I think we need more boldness in the body of Christ today. We need more spirit-filled believers who do not apologize for the word of God. We need men and women with the heart of a minister. Men with the heart of a pastor, sold out and set apart to God. Guys, there's no greater calling than to know God and to serve him. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter in eternity. Nothing. He's not going to ask about your 401k in heaven. He's not going to want to, you know, how much did you bench press, guys? He's not going to ask you what kind of car you drove or, you know, he won't, none of that. It's all irrelevant. Only thing that's going to matter is what have we done for his kingdom? How have we impacted? How have we used the gift? How have we taken the talent that he's given us? Have we buried it in the sand? Or are we bringing it back to him with interest? Are we bringing it back to him and showing him something even greater. So, in closing, again, I didn't get to the end of it because it's been long enough and you're tired. And I want you to wait tomorrow morning, right? But <laughs> so, a pastor's heart. The first thing we did see, I kind of skipped over it, but we saw it was a heart to disciple others. He calls the Ephesian elders in. He's going to pour out his heart on them to make disciples. Number two, a heart to lead by example. You just have the other one at the top. Heart to lead by example. Number three, a humble heart. A heart for the lost. Number five, a heart bound to the Spirit. Number six, a heart focused on eternity. Number seven, a heart for God's Word. And then lastly, a shepherd's heart, a heart for God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, that when we're gathered together, even in a room like this, Lord, you're here in our midst. And we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, we ask that tonight that your word, which has it's gone out, that it would not be the words of men that would impact us, but only your word. And Father, I pray every heart would be touched. Father, that we would, be, we would respond in obedience to the moving and the calling of your Holy Spirit upon our lives. Father, I thank you for each person here who so faithfully responded to the call to go to the school of ministry. Father, as they're being prepared, Lord, that even now I just pray that they would just fall more in love with you. They would desperately seek after you. And then, Lord, they would have that, that intimate fellowship with you where they can respond to that still, small voice as you lead and guide and direct them to the next thing that you have for them. Father, I pray no one would strive in our, we would not strive in our flesh, but we would respond in the Spirit. Father, I do continue to lift up uh, Calvary Modesto. I thank you for what a blessing they are to just the, all of Northern California, what a blessing they've been to us here in Santa Cruz. I pray you, that the ministry there will continue to be fruitful. But Lord, I pray you would continue, that would continue to be a base where you'd send people out, where churches would be planted. Father, I pray for Pat Manteca, Lord, and the work you're going to do there. Uh, Father, we just know even now the people you're going to draw there by your Spirit. And Lord, we just ask that it would be a fruitful work, that you would be glorified. Lord, that your word would go out in power and might. You'd bring people to hold up his hands and come alongside him and serve with him in that ministry there. Now, Father, for each person who's here, Lord, I just pray that they would come humbly before you, Lord, saying, here I am, Lord, use me. Lord, I'm not going to tell you where I want to go. I'm not going to ask you for anything, Lord. I'm just going to come and say, Lord, my life belongs to you. Show me what you want me to do. And while they're waiting, Lord, for what's next, may they be faithful right where they are. May they bloom where they're planted, Lord. May their lives bear much fruit. 
We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.